I have entitled this message, Healing for the Hopeless and the Helpless. Here we come to a very dramatic scene in the Gospel of John in chapter 5. It's actually a turning point in the book itself. It's a pivotal point for all that is going on. And there is a reason why John records this account of the healing of this paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. It's actually a couple of reasons, but they are very important reasons. You remember that John, in writing his gospel, was aware of the writings of the first gospels that had been written, and so he is not seeking to duplicate what they did. This is not one of the synoptic gospels where they all sort of say the same things and interlink together. This is a separate type of a gospel. So he chooses everything that he places into this gospel very carefully by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and it all culminates to come to a great climax at the end, showing that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, the only way, truth, and life to salvation. So, what is here is crucial toward that end, and we're turning a corner here in the book. In this particular section, we find this healing. The healing is done on a specific day. The Sabbath. And what it does is it brings about a reaction on the part of the Jewish leaders. It is the beginning of the angry unbelief that only flows and mounts from here right on out in the minds and the hearts of the Jewish leaders that ultimately ends in the death of Jesus Christ. You see, up until now, he's been revealing himself as Messiah with a very mixed reaction. And now, as we come to this point in time, he has already ministered in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to some extent showed himself to be the Messiah. But now he comes and he performs this healing on the Sabbath day. He could have done it the day before. He could have done it the day after. He chose to do it on the Sabbath day with this particular individual all by a grand divine design to bring about a response from the religious leaders to confront them with a message and bring about a response and force them to a decision. And really on a human level, what Jesus said and did that day ultimately cost him his life. They never forgave him what he did and said on this day. So it is a turning point in the Gospel of John. It also then becomes the occasion for some very great teaching on the Sonship of Christ. When Jesus in this passage begins to speak of His divine working as parallel with that of the Father. The Father is working is His statement that He makes about the Sabbath and the fact that He worked and did a healing on the Sabbath. And He says, and I am working. And that leads into a discussion and it really a message that occupies the rest of the chapter and it lays the foundation for all that goes on in the rest of the book. So this is a very, very important section in the Gospel of John. I'd like to read over some of the verses here and we'll just get into the chapter beginning with verse 1 where we read, After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind and lame and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. 
For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after stirring up the water was made well of whatever disease he had. A certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise and take up your bed and walk, and immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but whatever he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So here is a very clear statement about who Jesus Christ is. It comes right from his own lips. Everything in this section is designed to exalt Christ and force these people to realize that he is claiming to be the Son of God the Messiah of Israel. Now, as I look at this, I see a couple of things that really stand out here. And obviously the first thing is the miracle that is performed. The second thing is that the master here is persecuted. The miracle is performed and then the master is persecuted. And then the astonishing thing here, the third thing, is that the murder is plotted. There is a murder plotted from a healing. A most incredible thing, isn't it? And really, in the end, you see that it's tied into the legalism of these individuals. And that is in a, a whole section of the message in and of itself. So let's start off here in verse 1 and talk about this miracle that was performed. And I want to just get into the setting for a minute. As you look at verse 1, the first thing that you read is after this or after these things. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This phrase, after this, is, it's a technique that John uses. It's a a time note that he uses now and then to convey the thought of an indefinite period of time. So when he says, after this, he's not necessarily implying right after the last miracle that was just recorded in the chapter before, but after some time has gone by. You see, John is not so 
concerned in his gospel to tell us every single thing that happened in the life of Jesus. In fact, he says at the end, if you tried to do that, you could, you could write so many books that you know, the world couldn't even hold them all. That's not his point. So when he says after this, it's after a certain period of time has gone by, and he just wants you to know that an interval has passed, and he doesn't even fill you in on all the details of what have, have gone on, but he wants to take you to the next thing that's important insofar as the message he is bringing. John is interested in the things that Jesus said and did as it relates to his message, not so much the precise sequence and every little detail that goes on. And if you understand that, it will help you flow with the Gospel of John a little bit better. So the time is sometime after the last things that we read. Then he says there was a feast. He says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, John seems to be very interested in the feasts. In fact, 17 times John mentions feasts, as opposed to Matthew and Mark, who two times apiece mention the feast, and Luke, who three times mentions the feast. So there is, in the writing of John here, a distinct difference between his view of the feast and that of the other gospel writers. And it seems to me that what John is interested in as a side thought is to show how he fulfilled the major feasts. So he works these things into his presentation of Christ. And if you were an adult male and you lived within 15 miles or so of Jerusalem, you were required to go up there to the feast. And Jesus, wanting to show himself to be a godly Jew, as it were, as a Messiah to the Jews, really is careful to take part in all of these things. We don't even know if the disciples went with him on this particular journey. Did you ever think about the fact that maybe they didn't go with him everywhere he went? But we do know he went up at this time of a feast after some things had passed from the previous chapter. Now the place is a very interesting place. In verse 2 it says, There is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. For a long time, if you read the older commentaries, you find out that for a long time there was some controversy about this because John makes this statement that there is in Jerusalem this pool. And for a long time, uh, there was no indication that there was a pool like this of any kind. But the archaeologists have now discovered the Pool of Bethesda and one of the great things that you enjoy on a trip to Israel as some of our previous trippies are nodding about even now knowing what I'm going to say some of the great things that you enjoy one of them is to go to the Pool of Bethesda and to read it here and go there and stand there and look at it is a wonderful thing it really brings this story to life in fact, what you do is you generally go up to the Temple Mount where the temple was, where the foundation is, the stones, the wailing wall, those foundation stones that are left and all of that. And then you leave there. If you're with a Calvary Chapel group, you'll go into this church called St. Anne's Church, which is a very, very old church with very keen acoustics. And the big thrill is to go into St. Anne's Church and worship the Lord a cappella right there in Jerusalem and it just sounds so glorious 
And if Chuck Smith happens to be on that tour, he has a ritual. He's been there 30 times. Last time was his 30th time. And he has a ritual where after all the worshiping is done, there's silence. Everybody elbows each other to get quiet. And then he will sing a hymn a cappella alone. And that in itself is kind of worth the trip to Jerusalem. But right after you're done with that, you walk out the door and turn and go around the corner. And here is this big thing that's been uncovered. It's these layers. And you look down there and what it is, it's the pool of Bethesda. And generally you stand there and somebody gets up and gives a Bible study right from the very text that we have in front of us. And it's just a thrilling thing to know that these discoveries only validate what we already have believed to be true in the Word of God. So that's the place. You can go there today. It's right next to St. Anne's Church, just on the other side of the Temple Mount. This is quite a pathetic picture here. At these feasts, uh, Jerusalem would be jammed with pilgrims. And so on top of all the people jammed into Jerusalem, which is not a very big place within the walls, you have all these people crowded around this pool of Bethesda. It says here in verse 3 that... In this place, in this pool there, this area there, lay a great multitude of sick people and blind and lamed and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. And if you know anything about that time period in the world, that place in the world, these diseases were so common. I mean, what Jesus Christ did in His ministry in ministering to disease was astounding. He swept through this whole area of Palestine, healing people everywhere he went and doing miraculous things in an unprecedented way. Jesus had a real heart for hurting people. So here is, some commentators have called this picture here, uh, the world in miniature. You have the sick people, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. In a sense, it's like a type of the world spiritually. Sick and blind and paralyzed unable to cure themselves of their diseases. And into this picture comes Jesus Christ. Now the expectation of these people is very interesting. If you look at verse 3, it says, In this place lay a great multitude of sick people, blind and lame and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, what there was here with these people was a belief that... Somehow connected with the water was the possibility of being healed. This is not unusual. You find it all over the world. Throughout history, there have been mineral springs, hot springs, where people love to go and sit and they believe that there's great healing power in the waters. For example, in England, there's a place called Bath. And right in the center of the town, there's a big plaque put up as a monument to the healing waters of Bath where people have gone for hundreds of years to be healed of their maladies and the people are thankful for the healing waters of bath it's a mineral hot springs type thing now here the moving of the water is attributed to an angel but there is a difficulty in this passage that you can read over for years and never know that it's there and once you do a study of it it throws your study into kind of a tailspin for a while The difficulty lies in the next verse. Look at verse 4. It says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred the water. Then whoever stepped in first after stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. 
You say, what's so difficult about that? Well, the difficulty is this, that the older manuscripts do not have that verse in them at all. At all. Many scholars today feel that what happened is that a copyist, a scribe who was copying the scriptures in an effort to make an explanation of why all the people were there, put into the margin that they believed that an angel would stir the waters and then the first one in after the stirring of the waters would be healed. That if it was true, then the scribe was putting it in just to help people reading know what was going on. And then the idea is that later on, someone else came along and made a copy of that copy and took that little marginal footnote, as it were, and put it right into the text just to make it crystal clear so nobody could miss it. At that point, the arguments go in two directions. One is that there really was an angel, and that's the whole reason for copying it in, who stirred the water and brought the healing. The other is that it was nothing more than a superstition, just sort of like the waters at Bath and other places, hot springs you may have been to, and that these people only superstitiously believed that they would be healed. We can't be dogmatic either way. And the bottom line is there's no use arguing about it because it's not even the main point anyhow of what happens in this section. We do know that people crowded in here, Bethesda actually means house of mercy. I tend in my own heart to think, well, why would they all even stay there if nobody ever got healed if it wasn't true? And why would there be a man there paralyzed 38 years? Why wouldn't he say, hey, get me out of here. Airlift me out of this place. It's useless to hang around here. I mean, think of it. The guy could have been brought there as a teenager. And 38 years later, Jesus shows up. The argument that goes into it is that, well, nowhere in the Bible do you see an angel arbitrarily showing up and doing something like this in the midst of a bunch of sick people, leaving it up to the people to rush in and the first one in gets the healing and the worst ones off don't. So therefore, it could not possibly have been true. My only response to that is, hey, if God wants to send an angel to stir up a little pool of water and, and the first one in wins type thing and just throw out an occasional healing just to bless some sick people, he can do it if he wants to. And I don't find that to be that unusual when I compare it with some of the accounts that I find in the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but some of the accounts in the Old Testament are so bizarre, in my opinion, just as a person reading the Bible, that this, to me, doesn't seem unusual at all, and I never had one problem with it until I had to study for this study. So, you just let the Lord show you what you want to believe from here. One thing is clear, though. The people, the man who got healed included, believed that the first one in after the stirring of the water would get a healing. And that's why there was a great multitude in this place. Some say it was an underground spring that stirred the water, but whatever. That's the situation. And the pools have been uncovered. They are there. And this account really did happen. Now this man, it says in verse 5, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years years. This guy we know from the account who is unable to get himself into the water and that's why he remains in his unhealed condition. This man was paralyzed. 38 years he was in this condition. So he had been in this condition eight years longer than Jesus had been alive. Think of it. I mean it's a long time. So here is this pathetic individual 
And he sees people rush into the water when it's stirred and there's no one there to pick him up and carry him in. That in itself is just a picture of the selfishness of mankind, every man for himself. So long time he had laid there in this condition, probably brought there as a teenager and had spent his life there. It seems then that his condition is the worst of any man in the crowd. Jesus comes to this scene. That being the setting for the miracle, the next thing that we see here is the compassion that actually caused the miracle. Look at verse 3. It says, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. And then verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? Now the very first thing that jumps out to me here is Jesus moving through this crowd. I mean, there's all these people. Why this man? And what I see here is this word in verse 6. Jesus saw. He comes up, he looks on the scene, probably people are jostling him even as he walks up because it was literally person to person, body to body in Jerusalem during those feasts. He comes into this little area, it's so crowded with all these sick, afflicted people. And it says that he saw this poor sufferer lying in the crowd. Now why is that important? Well, because this man, after 38 years, no doubt felt so forgotten, so neglected, so lonely, unable to move around like the rest of the sufferers who would no doubt sit and talk about their experiences and the next rush to the pool and all of that, where he sits off on the side alone, unable to move. This is a lonely, suffering man. He is the worst Man, in terms of affliction, he has the worst affliction in the crowd. And there he is, feeling neglected and lonely and overlooked and forgotten. But the all-seeing eye of Jesus Christ comes and sees him and picks him out of the entire crowd and moves in on him. I love that. Because it speaks to me of the heart of God. There are so many things we misunderstand about God. I believe that when we gather together, like right now, to worship... We come in and God loves us all. We're, all of us that are His children have that special relationship with Him. All of us that are saved have that wonderful relationship with Him. But some of us came in today and we're doing alright. We're doing just fine. You came in smiling, beaming, excited, feeling good. Can't wait to get into the Word. The Bible's been alive to you lately and it's just a good time in your life. Others of you kind of drug in. And some of you have come in just downright afflicted and sad and feeling neglected and lonely and forgotten. But as I look at this text, I realize something. God looks among us today. His design is to bless every one of us. But as His eyes move among us, they fall upon the most afflicted. And I believe as God looks at us right now, He sees in our midst the most afflicted individual and his heart is full of concern for you. And that his desire is yes to bless the rest of us that are doing okay. 
the highest agendas on his list, one of the greatest things on his to-do list in this service is to reach you. To reach you with his touch, to reach you with his love, and to make a difference in your life today. Jesus saw him. Went to him unexpectedly, spoke to him unexpectedly, and shared gracious words of sympathy. But when Jesus was done with him, this man went on his way rejoicing. See, Micah 7, 18 says that God delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. I believe that God is far more willing to save than man is willing to be saved. I believe that God is far more willing to do good in your life and my life than we are willing even to receive it. This is the God in Jesus who moved into this crowd and saw this man. You feel forgotten today? You feel lonely? Do you feel like you're probably suffering more than anybody in the entire place? Know this, Jesus sees your suffering and he cares about your condition and he longs to minister to you. So the compassion behind the miracle. Now, you may have seen this question that leads up to the miracle here. He says in verse 6 to him, Do you want to be made well? Now you might look at that and even laugh and say, Come on, give me a break. What do you think after 38 years? But it's a critical question. And one that's more complex than it might seem to you at first glance. He said to him, Do you want to be made well? He knew he had been in that condition a long time. It may seem to you like the answer is obvious, but it really isn't that simple. No doubt years of waiting, years of his suffering had etched upon his face apathy. And I'm convinced that at this point in time, this man has mixed feelings about his condition and the whole thing and being healed and all of that. And the truth is, when Jesus says, do you want to be made well, it's a critical question. And sometimes, if you think about it, Even our answers to critical questions are not always really what's in our hearts. story is told about a man who lost out to a rival for promotion in the organization in which they both worked. The loser felt he ought to do the right thing, so he dictated a telegram to his secretary. It went like this, Congratulations on your success. Permit me to extend the heartiest congratulations and pledge my sincere, wholehearted support for you in this promotion. Secretary's writing it down real fast in shorthand. And then she turned to him and she said, Well, I'm done. Shall I read it all back to you? No, no, said the man. I couldn't possibly stand to hear it. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? What did he really mean by that? We're wondering if his congratulatory message was really meant. See, to say a thing and to mean it deep down are not always the same. When Jesus says, do you want to be made well? It's a critical question. Very critical. It's meant to search the man's soul. A man who is laid in a stale condition, paralyzed in his body, and by now probably paralyzed in terms of his hope. You wonder... Here is a man who had been disabled for years. Settled into a pattern, no doubt by now. He's well aware of his disabilities, what it allows him to do, what it does not allow him to do. And by now, no doubt, a beggar, the only way to make his living. He's well aware 
of the people who knew about him in the city and who would care for him, drop him an occasional shekel. Think of it, if he is to be made suddenly well, then everything is going to change for him. Does he really want to be made well? I mean, if suddenly he is well, he can no longer depend on all those people that have been coming by and throwing a coin in his cup. That may seem like a low-level bit of security to you, but it was a security to him in the pattern of his life. If he is to be made well, suddenly he has to take responsibility for his life. Here is a man who would suddenly have to earn a living, who's been laying on a pallet, a cheap, portable-type bed all these years. He has no special skills. He's simply been paralyzed for 38 years. Someone would be willing to help a man like him as he is in his condition, paralyzed, but would someone be able to help him as an able-bodied man? You see, suddenly he's faced with all this responsibility. If I'm healed, I'm literally going to have to, quote, stand on my own two feet in life and take responsibility for my life. Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? What is your answer to that question today? I think it's a soul-searching question. Do you want to be made well? You see, the first essential step toward receiving power from Jesus Christ is an intense desire for it. The first essential step in receiving the power of Jesus Christ is an intense desire for it. Let me put it this way. If you do not want to change, then you're not going to change. In fact, you cannot change. Do you want to be made well, he says to the man. You see, if you're content to stay the way you are. If this soul-searching question comes to you today, do you want to be made well? And you are content simply to stay the way you are, then there's no change for you. God isn't going to violate your free will. You never find Jesus interacting with people and really doing something in their life without interacting with their will. Do you want to be made well? You see, the desire for better things really need to be surging. It needs to be surging in your heart if a change is going to come. It's amazing to contemplate when you look at this man's condition and you see the question. There are many people who do not know Christ that do not want to be made well. Do you realize that? Maybe you're even one of them here today, just visiting, listening. I can remember a few years back when we were in the Philippines. We were in this little tiny town called Karkar. And we were doing a, a conference there in a very poor town, about as poor as you could ever imagine in your whole life. And with the sound of the communists shooting people in the hills in the background, it was quite an interesting event. We did the conference in a church where dogs and chickens wandered in and out throughout the conference. We don't even let people wander in our services. And we had to stay in this place. It was a lumber company that had a house attached to it. We stayed in this room that was full of spiders the size of mice, mosquitoes the size of 747s. You know I'm exaggerating now. It was, in my opinion, one of the worst places I'd ever stayed. Here was this bed. As we're led into the room, this is our sleeping quarters. The individual who brought us in said, Oh, by the way, uh, a man who was an opium addict for many years killed himself in that bed. So just enjoy your sleep tonight. You know, that kind of a thing. We then found out that upstairs there was a room where this woman had lived 
For 16 years, she had not come out of that room except only to come down momentarily downstairs, get a little food or whatever, and go back up to that room. When I heard that, I thought, that's one of the weirdest things I've ever heard in my life. 16 years this woman has been in there since she was a little girl. So I said, we got to get her down here and talk to her about Jesus. So one of the people there lured her into coming down and sitting on the couch and talking to us. We spoke to her for about two hours about Jesus Christ. This was one of the most miserable, messed up individuals I've ever met in my life. They had described already to us these fits that she would have up in that room that she's had for years, these seizures and these fits where she would scream and moan and be all scratched up all over her body when these fits had passed. It seemed to me like the woman was demon-possessed by the way they described her. And I wasn't so sure I'd ever met anybody in my life who was demon-possessed. And we sat and we talked with this woman for about two hours. And the more we talked, the more we explained about Christ, the more apparent it became that she wanted absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ and His love and the fact that He could make her well of her condition. Turns out, what had led to her condition was an endless chain of sin. And when we said, He can free you from the effects of this sin, and I was convinced at that point she was demon-possessed, and I said to her, He can free you of these demons that come and haunt you. And I said, it's true, they come and haunt you and they torment you, don't they? And she said, yes, it's absolutely true. I said, would you like to be free? And she said, no, I would not. I said, would you like to have the love of Jesus flood your life and the peace of God and your guilt cleanse? No, I would not. Would you like the defilement washed out of your brain and the horrible, isolated, wretched existence you live up in that room for these 16 years to end and enter into a new life? No, I would not. So I said, let me get this straight. You're choosing to remain demon-possessed, to remain guilty, to remain defiled, to remain unhappy and hang out in that room for the rest of your life? Yeah, that's what I want. I was astounded. I was shocked. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? It's a searching question. It is a good question. It's a necessary question. And it's one that every one of us need to answer as it relates to us. Sometimes people just don't want to give up what they're hanging on to and allow God to touch them and to heal them. Now, the great thing is, this man, he did want to be made well. In fact, you find Jesus leaves and then he finds the man in the temple after he's healed. And here's the interesting thing to tie into this whole issue of sin that I just mentioned to you. It's evident that this man's affliction had come upon him because of the sin he had been involved in before he developed the condition. Look down at verse 14. After he's healed and everything, Jesus vanishes. And then we read, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, notice, lest a worse thing come upon you. In other words, if you think what you have had these 38 years is bad, do not go back into your life of sin, or you can expect a worse thing. And the implication here, and most commentators agree on this, is that the sin he was involved in led to the affliction that led to the paralysis. 
But this man was open to the advances and the love of Jesus to rescue him from the effects of sin in his life. And that's why you find him in the temple afterwards. 38 years he'd been out of the temple, at least. The first thing he does when he's touched by Jesus and healed is he rushes to the temple to worship God. That to me is all the evidence I need of where the man's heart is at. And Jesus also says things like, see that you sin no more to people who now can follow that command. People that have been saved by him. It's only a fool that makes a mock at amending their sinful ways. Proverbs 14.9 says. So when you read this question, it isn't a trite question or a shallow question or even an obvious question. It's a soul-searching question. And in the truest sense, Jesus had come to rescue him from the effects of his sin. And he would like to do that in your life as well. Do you want to be made well by Jesus? He wants to work in your life. But you must be willing And as long as you are content to compartmentalize your life or to wall off areas of your life and say, hey, you know what? It's just kind of been that way for so long. It doesn't even matter to me anymore. You can't change. And He will not violate your free will. But if you will come and offer that to Him and say, Lord, yes, I want to be made well. Go for it, Lord. Do it, Lord. And He's free to work. Critical question. Now, let's go back to the process here. He receives from the question sort of a hopeless answer. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, and he said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. You see the picture of this man? He had narrowed his options for deliverance from his affliction all the way down to this one option of this one pool with what he believed to be this stirring that would make an option for one man to be healed. And he had come to realize that being paralyzed with no one there to put him into the water, that even though he was there, he was not going to be healed. Jesus comes, he says, do you want to be made well? And instead of saying, yes, He says, well, you got to understand the situation. You see, here I am. Take a look at me. I can't move. I've been like this for so long. I've watched so many. Imagine how many people in 38 years I've seen jump into that stirred water. But you see, there's no one to put me in. They're all so selfish. They don't care about me. Do you want to be made well? Well, you've got to understand my situation. Have you ever done that with the Lord? I think we all run the risk of doing that with the Lord. The Lord approaches you, would you like to be made well? Well, (laughs) you have to understand the situation, Lord. You see, so many years ago I was converted. Now I began to pray at that time and some of the brothers interceded for me. Then I went over here to Bible school, Lord, and I was just assuming that with the passing of time everything was going to work out and these things would change. Do you want to be made well? Well, Lord, just let me explain. You see, as time went on, I began to realize that maybe I I wouldn't change. Do you want to be made well? Lord, you see, I'm Irish. Everybody knows if you're Irish, you have a temper. Do you want to be made well? What do you say when God comes to you and He wants to work in an area of your life? Do you say yes? Or do you start explaining to the Lord why there can't be the wellness? 
I think so often we keep ourselves from the work of God rather than just leaving it all open. Lord, it's up to you, you know. If you have chosen now, after all these years, to suddenly zap me in this area and change me, if, Lord, now is the time where you want to deliver me from this temper I've had and change my reputation, Lord, then do it, Lord. I'm ready. Yes, Lord, I want to be made well. Live your life like that before the Lord. If God comes to you and He's speaking about an area, speaking to an area, and then confirms it in some message or some conversation or some Bible reading, whatever, let Him move, let Him work in your life. Do you want to be made well? This man wanted to be made well, but he answered with all the reasons why he couldn't be. And here's the graciousness of the Lord. It was Jesus' intention to make this man well from the moment he walked into the crowd. He just wants the man to search his soul. And I believe as he went on to talk to him, there was just something in the look in Jesus' face and something in his voice that touched that man's heart because the next thing we see is that Jesus goes on to perform the miracle. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And I love what comes next, verse 9, And immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. John Blanchard has well said that Christ himself is the dynamic of all his demands. That is so good. That's exactly what's happening here. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. Do you notice it's a threefold command? Tells him three things. He says, rise, that's do the impossible. He says, take up your bed, that's don't expect a relapse. And he says, walk, don't expect to be carried around anymore in life from now on on your own two feet. This is a full healing guy. Rise, do the impossible, take up your bed, don't expect to relapse, and walk. I want you to be aware of the fact that no longer will you be carried through life by other people. I'm going to give you the power to stand on your own two feet in life. And that's what interacting with Jesus Christ is all about. He makes you a whole human being. And what I see here that is so wonderful that I want you to take away with you is this. Jesus gives no impossible commands. Because with the command comes the ability. See, when Jesus says, do this, He pledges the power to you to be able to do it. We get power when we keep His commandments, when we in humble faith make the effort simply to do His will. Jesus gives no impossible commands. If ever there was an impossible command, it was to a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, rise up, take your bed, and walk out of here. But you see, with the command came the power, and the man believed. He trusted the Lord, and he stepped forward. I mean, put yourself on his pallet. The word in the Greek is the word for pallet. It's just a portable bed. Put yourself there. Jesus says, rise. He trusted him enough to make that initial move. And the power was there to meet him. Augustine said it years ago. He said, give what you command, Lord, and command what you will. Think about that. Give what you command and command what you will. Lord, you give me the ability and I will do anything you ask me to do in life. 
I don't know if any of you have seen the newsletter from the Hardesties, our missionaries out in the Ukraine. But you need to do whatever you have to do to get your hands on their most recent newsletter and read it. He will never ask you to do what he will not enable you to do. A family that left our church went to the Ukraine and has gone through some of the greatest hardships in the last year imaginable and coming out at the end of the newsletter with glowing testimonies of the power and the strength of God to sustain them. Krista passed me this. It had been sent over and she passed it to me with a note on the envelope. This is a must-read newsletter. And of course, I've been up on the whole thing. I just yanked that thing out of there and blazed right through it. I was moved to the point of tears reading it. Jesus will never command the impossible because he will always give you the ability. Augustine said it, Give what you command and command what you will, Lord, and I'll do it. And so the performance of the miracle is just a wonderful thing. And the timing of the miracle is not to be missed. Look at verse 9. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Here is a distinct strategy by Jesus. Everything that he did as he moved through Jerusalem and on his mind was to move to the pool of Bethesda where he knew these people gathered. As he got to the crowd, as he scanned the crowd, he was looking for the greatest sufferer in the crowd. When he said, rise, take up your bed and walk, it was on purpose to take the worst specimen of suffering in the crowd, do the greatest miracle, complete miracle, creative act possible on the guy, and send him across the crowd in front of everybody, absolutely whole, when everybody knew that for 38 years this guy was an absolute hopeless case. Why? To testify to all of them who he was. And he did it on the Sabbath. The timing was intentional, absolutely intentional, to draw out from the hearts of the religious leaders where they were really at with God, to expose the viciousness of legalism, to expose how legalism makes you miss out on so much in life. And all of that is what follows from here. Vance Havner said years ago, Jesus Christ was the most disturbing person in history. And that's right. And what he does here is one of the most disturbing things that has ever been done. But we're going to stop here. Because I want you to just think about the things we've covered. And next time, I want to go on and talk about the legalism of these people. And the peril of legalism in your life. And to see what else God has for us in this passage. Do you want to be made well? He wants to work in your life. He wants you to take all those excuses, all those explanations, and just lay them at His feet. And let Him again be Lord in your life. Let Him again work in your life by His timing. Let Him again work in your life by His Spirit to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. This was a hopeless man. An absolutely hopeless man. You know what else I like here? 
I don't want to get too deeply into this because we'll get into it right in the beginning of 1 Peter soon. What I like here is this man went away saved. And he laid there on that bed paralyzed. He could not go find Jesus. Jesus came and found him. Jesus came and found him. It is a beautiful picture of the love of God to rescue the worst of suffering sinners and bring a great relief from the affliction of their sin. This is the Savior that I serve. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together in your word. We are so blessed and encouraged to see the aggressiveness of your love. Lord, look upon this group of people listening to your word this day. For that individual that is just feeling like they are the greatest afflicted in our midst, pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. Encourage them. Heal them and make them whole. Let them stand in this life, as it were, spiritually on their own two feet. Let them know the strength of God and Jesus Christ. And for all of us, Lord, may we simply allow you to manifest your wonder-working power in each one of our lives and to receive from you the goodness and the love and the power that you have to bring. And Lord, when you ask of us what seems to be the impossible, may we know that along with our step of faith will come the strength that we need to watch you perform in and through us what we previously believed to be impossible, but then will become a great reality in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have resources we know nothing about. Open our hearts, God, to tap into these resources, to become men and women of faith, and to move forward upheld by the power and the might and the love of our great omnipotent God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.